Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello and welcome to Book Rising, which rhymes with uprising. This is our podcast about books, writing and publishing. And this actually happens to be our ninth podcast in our amazing trailblazing African feminist series. And I'm so excited and honored to welcome award-winning Nigerian-American author, Chinelo Okparanta. Chinelo is super young, but has many achievements under her belt already. She's the author of three books, the story collection, Happiness Like Water, her bold novel, Under the Udala Trees, which explored the themes of forbidden love between two women during the Biafran War, and her latest, Harry Sylvester Bird, a satire about a white man in small town US of A. Chinelo has been the recipient of prestigious awards, fellowships, and residencies, including two Lambda Awards for Lesbian Fiction, the Betty Burson Emerging Writer Award, and many others. She's been a finalist for coveted awards such as the Kane Prize and the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, among others. She is currently Associate Professor of English Literature and the Director of Creative Writing at Smartmore College. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chinello. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and I think you're joining us from uh, DC, uh, if I'm right, yes. Yeah, the DC area, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, let me just dive into uh, a very general uh, question. It is now 10 years uh, since the publication of your uh, first book, The Story Collection, Happiness Like Water, uh, in 2013. And during this time, you've now published two novels, several short stories and essays in wonderful venues, uh, have gone from success to success. And I wanted to start by asking where it all began in the kind of biographical sense of your life. Did you always want to be a writer? I didn't always know that I would be a writer. (laughs) No, I did not. Um, When I was younger, uh, I won some writing competitions. I came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, and we came to Boston, um, the city of Boston. So I remember that I believe I was uh, maybe 11 years old, 10 plus, 11 years old, and I was in sixth grade. And um, there was a citywide essay contest. uh, And the theme, if I remember correctly, was it had something to do with justice for all and all for justice. And um, I had entered that uh, essay contest and I won it. Um, And so I did know at a young age that I was interested in, in, you know, essay writing uh, and writing in general, but also, I guess, in social justice, although I would not have been able to put that into words at the time. I I remember that for that essay, I had done some research on uh, domestic violence. Wow. Um, and I, well, I looked up, I remember researching in venues such as the Encyclopedia Britannica and also <laughs> um, my parents were uh, Jehovah's Witnesses at the time. And so I looked up some, you know, the texts that I had access to. I looked up, you know, definitions of what was, you know, emotional violence, psychological violence, that sort of psychological abuse. Um, those sort of things. So I must have been interested in, uh, you know, just uh, themes related to social justice at the time. 
but I, you know, for me as a child, I must have just saw, seen it as, um, and as, as a sort of school assignment as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I did know that I, I, I was interested in writing and that I had some kind of talent related to writing. And then, you know, later on, I, I in high school, I also won another or you know, maybe a couple of other contests. And I did become a middle and high school teacher and I ran a creative writing club. I took mm -hmm. um, some creative writing courses as an undergraduate. And then um, while I was completing my master's degree in the restoration era, British, British restoration era, wow. um, <laughs> I also took some creative writing classes. And uh, finally, in I think it was 2008, 2009, I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop um, and got accepted. And that's when I basically began to focus on mm -hmm. fiction. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's very different from the person who's kind of, uh, uh, you know, sneaking away books and then thinking, oh, you know, I want to tell a story. You're actually thinking of such important big issues at such a young age and realizing that fiction and storytelling might be a venue to kind of think about bigger things. Right. Yeah. I didn't actually, you know, even as I wrote those essays, I didn't, even in Iowa, honestly, I didn't know that I would mm -hmm. be a published writer. I didn't know what it meant to be an author. Authors were, you know, people you read in books and that was not me in my in my imagination of things so I really had no real sense of what it was to be a writer um and you know <laughs> it actually <laughs> caused me quite a bit of anxiety when my work began to be read widely um it happened when you you mentioned the Kane Prize and so that was the first story um that was read widely and I actually had a bit of anxiety thinking <laughs> about things like audiences and um, yeah. you know, how it, it's shocking the first time that you start to envision how other people must see your work, the, the effect of other people's eyes on your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Uh, and then it seems like you went on to, you know, I think it eventually went on to kind of um, not embrace it, but, you know, allow yourself to go to even bigger places at the end of the day, because I'm thinking here, of course, of under the Udala trees. Um, and in general, I think a really outstanding, urgent aspect of your work uh, is the exploration of queer desire. And it it's often through the lens of kind of illicit desire that's not allowed. Uh, this is part of your short stories, of course, your novel. And then I don't want to spoil it for others, but Harry Sylvester Bird also actually has, has these themes. So it's not like you're saying, Oh, you know, it's just the Nigerian aspect of it that's forbidden. It's also within the uh, U.S. context. So, you know, just a kind of odd question, maybe. But why are such desires, such relations, always coming across as forbidden in your work? Well, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm super excited about work that delve into queer desire without any sense of the forbidden. Um, these are, you know, wonderful uh text because they are they seem to exist at a time period where there is more equality than the time period than that I 
grew up in and the time period that I was writing in. Um, you know, so they're in a sense a celebration of how far we've come. But for me, I mean, I generally write from my own cultural context. And I was writing at a time when such desire was in fact forbidden. You know, mm -hmm. I did grow up in, <laughs> I mentioned earlier, a Jehovah's Witness household. Yeah. Um, and in the, you know, I came to the US in the 1990s, you know, the conversation surrounding um, same-sex relations was very different from what it looks like now. Mm -hmm. um, it was a time where there was so much conservatism, you know, even in my own cultural context, but also in society as a whole, definitely in Nigeria. Um, so it's wonderful for me when I meet writers who don't have that same sense of fear in a way. Um, but, you know, for many, there's still some fear, some forbidden Mm -hmm. nature associated with such desire and even here in the U.S. with the overturning of Roe versus Wade there's been some fear you know mm -hmm. in many of our hearts about like the the possibility of the legislation on same-sex marriage becoming somehow maybe in the future going the same way as Roe versus Wade and so it it, it isn't um, a situation where you know, for me in my in my life, I try not to celebrate too early. I try maybe I'm a little too cautious, um, and that's another thing because there's a place for celebration. There's a you should celebrate the wins every step of the way. Yeah. But I I I I also am aware that society has a way to a, a way of you know reversing itself or sometimes taking steps backwards mm -hmm. um, in some ways it does feel like society today is taking some backward steps which absolutely which is the nature of these things and you know I was sick for the last few years and I've said this before in other interviews but um, one of the things that I was told repeatedly because sometimes you you feel really down you know um, but I was told repeatedly by, you know, different doctors, functional medicine doctors, um, by friends, um, that healing is not linear. So it is natural. I would say, like, this is a nation, as all nations are, that is going through the journey, the healing journey. And so it is natural, I guess, that we would take some steps back. And then hopefully we take several steps forward. Um, so it's possible that we're just in that little moment of having some backward steps and that it will get better from here. And I do hope, I have hope that it will, it is that, that, that things will in fact get better, but this is just a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, of a setback, a sort of growing pain. Um, but, you know, even in a growing pain situation, it's also worthwhile for people, for citizens to speak up so that we ensure that things will in fact get better. Um, because if we don't speak up, <laughs> things very well might just continue to, you know, tumble in the wrong direction. Right. Um, and so, yeah, um, generally, I guess I'm just saying that it's wonderful that people are able to write um, from a place of um, less fear, from a place that does not you know, worry about the forbidden nature of such desire. But for me, I was writing from, from 
from my own uh, my own cultural context, and uh, I was writing with hope that mm -hmm. we go beyond that. And it does seem that in 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 many ways we have gone beyond that fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, I'm like, I'm slightly surprised by your answer. I don't know why I almost thought you'd say that unrequired illicit desire is the only desire sort of worth expressing almost, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so is the only one that creates narrative tension, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't write from, see, that's the thing. Um, and, you know, many people have asked me about, you know, your MFA, your this, your that. I honestly, I, I study a lot. So I, what I study is history and culture. I'm interested in literature insofar as it relates to the journey that humanity is making. But I don't necessarily write from this aspect of, you know, trying to, I don't know, trying to create the tension or trying to, mm -hmm. You know, like I am aware of craft, I studied it, but I, I think that there's something for me, I'm writing more from an emotional space than, mm -hmm. I, than I am from this, you know, craft related, let's build the tension. I think tension will come naturally if you have a, a, a story that has heart in it, that, that is, is a story you're compelled to write for a for personal reason but maybe that's just how I work, you know? So all those other elements like tension building, you know, trying to instigate, those are actually secondary to my writing. Um, it would seem that I'm trying to create some kind of commotion, but I'm really not. If you know <laughs> me, I just, I speak up. That's the one thing. I'm actually quite shy and I'm not a public person, but if you, you know, if you ask my mother, <laughs> she'll say, you know, don't make her upset because she won't be rude, but she will speak up. She'll tell you what you've done to hurt her, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of what my writing does as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just while we're on the topic of kind of, uh, you know, queer writing or uh, writing about gay, lesbian, trans characters and stories, it, it does feel right now just because I'm more, I tend to be quite interested in African literature and cultural production from the African continent. Uh, and it feels like there's a, there's a lot more fiction and film and poetry uh, on these topics. And thinking of course of Rafiki by Wanuri Kahiu in Kenya, Akweke uh, Amaze, many, many, many books that they have recently put out. And I feel like the South Africans have, been uh, chipping away at this <laughs> for a long time from the Rainbow Nation place. Um, so, you know, you sort of answered this, but I guess I'll push one for one more. Uh, what do you think has changed within the African sense and what do you think remains the same? Well, I, I feel in the African sense of things, as you say, um, that our society is more outspoken now than ever before. But I think that's true for the global society, right? So I think that before where LGBT rights were sort of a hush-hush topic, I think that these days, both the conservative members and the liberal members of society, of all societies, are seeming to share the stage almost equally. Um, where even just a few years ago, this was not the case. So I, I think it would appear that same-sex rights are becoming more and more simply just a global 
fight, um, not necessarily, you know, um, located, I guess, in the West, mm-hmm. which is what you might have said when I first wrote Happiness Like Water with the story America, mm. you know, might have said oh you're you know being brainwashed by the west and um because you live there uh but it it would appear to me that it is no longer just a western thing that um most cultures around the world are realizing you know generally the importance of human rights so let's talk a little bit about the politics of publishing which is something we're very interested here at the radical books collective uh, and I think you might be you might be the right person to weigh in on you know just telling us how books are received, what happens with publishing uh, in those two places that you occupy, which is Nigeria and the U.S. So I just thought wondered if you had any thoughts on this topic uh, from both those perspectives. Yeah, I do. I I can talk about. So first, I guess I want to talk about under the Udala trees. Um, which is, you know, my first, my debut novel. Um, I I believe from my perspective that it was generally well received in the American audience. Um, and, you know, you've read it. So it was an interrogation and sort of basically a criticism of the uh, conservative religious-based anti-LGBTQ mentality of much of Nigeria. And, it seems to me that it was easier for the Western audiences to um, support such a novel because it was a critique of a society or a culture that was outside of their own. Um, And repeatedly when I was promoting the book, I I did have to endure comments such as, oh, it's such a shame that Nigeria is so backwards. And um, there was a French reader who actually used the word like a barbaric culture, you know, um, oh in reference to Nigerian Nigerian society, which, you know, is shocking. Yes, I want to write a novel that is, you know, pro-LGBTQ rights, but that does not mean that I see my culture as barbaric. So there were, it was an interesting journey, publication journey in terms of the different ways in which the different demographics um, digested the book. Um, Nigerians in Nigeria, and Mm -hmm. actually Nigerians sometimes in Europe, sometimes told me that, you know, um, it was disappointing. (laughs) Because that, you know, they've said things like, oh, you've been brainwashed by the West. And one person I remember in London, asked me what my parents must think about me writing such a novel. Um, But interestingly enough, years later, so it's only been, what, seven years since I published Under the Udala Trees, and the reaction is so overwhelmingly different, right? So people have written me, even back then, though, I will say there were people who wrote to me, you know, um, privately and told me how important the book was. So I don't want to, I don't want to talk only about the negative of the mm-hmm. reactions, right? So even then there were people who privately um, spoke with me um, when I was doing the promotion in Lagos, for instance, and even in Abiyokuta, um, there were people who called me and privately told me that, you know, this is a reflection of their own life. And, you know, it's as if I'd written what they were going through in a novel. And it was nice to see, to read of their experiences in a novel. 
um, somebody in the US and a Nigerian immigrant in the US um, wrote to me um, just saying that she was writing me this letter from the closet, like she was physically in the closet of her parents' home. Oh my gosh. Was reading my book and writing me the letter. Um, so the book did reach people, but now it's more, way more widely um, approved mm-hmm. of, you know, in the Nigerian community. Um, it's as if it's given other queer writers permission to also come out and write their their own poems and um, their right. own works of fiction and just openly talk about their own sexuality. Um, and so it's it's interesting to watch the journey that a book makes, right? Mm-hmm. So it feels like for, um, for Harry Sylvester Bird, it almost feels like it's the opposite reaction now where it makes some American audience is a little bit uncomfortable. Part of it is the nature of the book being written mm-hmm. um, as a satire. Part of it is the fact that the criticism is now directed to the American audience, right? So specifically the white American audience that is racist because not all the white American audiences are, um, you know, happily racist. Um, <laughs> but, but but the book is specifically speaking to the racial prejudices and the microaggressions faced by um, immigrant culture, but in this case, specifically the Black African immigrant mm-hmm. society, you know, and there are lots of questions that are raised and there are many reasons why such a book would make them make people uncomfortable. And I'm very, very happy to have those conversations. Many of those um, you know, reasons I, I have thought about, and I'm very happy mm-hmm. for people to discuss. One of them is, you know, you and I are both immigrants, and for a long time, we were told that, you know, as immigrants, we don't actually have a right to complain about, you know, injustices. We should just be grateful, right? right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's a conversation I've had with many immigrant um people, friends, you know, community members, and it's similar. So we face these discriminatory moments and um, prejudices and microaggressions, and we don't feel that we have the right to say anything about it because we should be grateful. And the way I think about it is, you know, like there are, and I'm not saying that this is a direct parallel, but, you know, so you have a family, for instance, and the parents adopt a child, whether they are sort of put in the situation of having to adopt the child because maybe the parents passed away somehow and left the child to them, or maybe they actually purposefully adopted a child. It doesn't actually give those parents a right to abuse the child and simply think that the child should remain forever grateful. Mm-hmm. You, know? um, you can't abuse a person and yes you've adopted them and you have given them sometimes what is a life that's better than what they might have had but does it give you a right to abuse them and think that they should continuously take it and Mm -hmm. never say like this is what you've done to me to hurt me and this is how it feels when you hurt me you know then that's uh that's definitely problematic if we have that sensibility that as immigrants we have no right to speak up right 
Um, that doesn't mean that we won't speak up for the positive things that right. such a society has done for us. And trust me, I've written those stories too. My story, America, is basically a glorification of America, right? Where I talk about how, like, you know, there are no mosquitoes in America, which is not even true. And, you know, this, this <laughs> character talks about how the fruit is shiny and everything is better. And, you know, in America, they've come up with ways to deal with the oil spillage and, and all of those things. So I have written those positive stories of America I have glorified I have it isn't as if I'm I'm only picking on the negative you know mm -hmm. it just happened this one Harry Celeste just happens to be that moment in time where the racial issues just got overwhelming and I could not help but express them in my heart in my art in my writing um, and that's kind of what art is you know like you're passionate about something and it comes out in some form of expression. For me, these things come out in art. And, uh, you know, that's basically the, the, the reason why I wrote the novel. Um, yeah. But it isn't necessarily to, you know, whine and complain. And, you know, the next project will be something else. And maybe it would be glorifying America too. I don't know. But it's also fair to allow artists to, to be honest in their mm -hmm. art. Yeah, I think, I think uh, part of what I, I, I'm taking from this answer where we started with the sort of publishing politics of both places is that, you know, on both sides of the spectrum, when you wrote Under the Udala Trees, there was different problems. One was, I mean, negativity, negativity I would say, generally. Um, but, uh, and now you've written an even more explosive kind of book, which really critiques actually at the end of the day, uh, the United States. Uh, but before we get into Harry Sylvester Bird, and I really have so many questions about that. Um, do you think that the, the reviews and the publications are, are, are better now in terms of um, evaluating Nigerian writers or writers that are uh, migrant? You know, you said somebody called it a barbaric culture. Uh, you, do you think we have we have gone past this? Because honestly, I can't even digest if if you're going to say <laughs> if you're going to answer in the positive for this. If you're going to say no, nothing's changed. Um, in my experience, I think that there's more awareness surrounding the topic, but fundamentally, I don't really see a big change. I it seems to me from my angle that the best reviewers of African literature are Africans themselves, right? The best reviewers of even American literature are Americans themselves, you know? They have the context to correctly, or I don't know, to thoroughly or to more comprehensively review the work. They have the context, you know? Sure. Um, it, it does a sort of disservice to writers of you know African literature immigrant writers when reviewers that lack that context um, review it because there's there's so much that is missing right um, and you run the risk of writing a review that is a little bit myopic um, and so it's you know it's it's a work in progress in my opinion but there's also a place for 
everybody's thoughts on literature because that's what literature sure. is and you give it out to the world and everybody digests it in the way that they will but it's important to remember that there will be context cultural contexts historical context um, political context that might be missing depending on what angle you're entering the work from mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely uh and it, it always tends to be that like the Western critic or the reviewer feels often quite entitled to, you know, uh, comment on certain things without, uh, you know, backing up a little bit and, and gaining more knowledge about places. Uh, but let's hope it's changing. I feel like it might be changing. And I think those, uh, those writer, those critics of color, reviewers of color are the ones that kind of tend to make the difference. Um, to, to remain in the same topic, but to switch gears, you know, your current novel that, you know, that just came out, uh, Harry Sylvester Bird, uh, is written entirely in the voice of, a, uh, from the interiority of a white American uh, man. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's very critical of the United States. More importantly, it's very critical of liberals um, <laughs> in the United States. Um, and and we're looking at a kind of uh, experiment in satire here, uh, and it's really impactful and it's really incredible and gripping. And we read it for a book club recently, and you visited us, Chinello, and um, I, I, you know, you yourself saw that some people were reacting quite strongly to it. Uh, and on the other hand, there were others who felt uh, right away that they understood they had met these people before, they had lived in these towns before. Whereas there's a group of people that felt, I don't understand. What's the point of this? What are you doing? And I think some people were quite confrontational. I apologize. But, uh, but it, it, it speaks to the kind of reactions this is getting. So what incited you? Let's start from the beginning. What incited you to enter the white male consciousness? What do you find lurking there? Okay, so first I will say that I, I guess <laughs> I want to just clarify that it is... On the, on the very surface of the novel, yes, the story follows the journey of a white man, right? Yes. And this is a white man who attempts to come to terms with the issue of racism and with, the, and with his own history of abuse. Um, so that's the easiest way to approach the novel. We fo follow his growth from childhood um, to adulthood. Um, we see his adventures as he tries to overcome his racist upbringing. Um, so in that sense, it's, you know, a story written about a white young man um, trying to make sense of what would be a corrupt society. Um, but I want to point out that this is a novel that is not an appropriation novel, because if anything, it's an interrogation of the white Western literature's history of appropriation. It is very consciously playing with this conversation of cultural appropriation in literature and elsewhere. Also, it's playing with and interrogating the appropriation of Black bodies in the case of Harry. So in a very real sense, it's very different from the typical cultural appropriation novel. Mm. I was actually very interested in the fact that Western white novels, even today, continue to appropriate the stories of other cultures. Um, when I do the interview, when I did the interview um, with especially Publishers Weekly, they mentioned American Dirt, 
right? But there have been others before that. There's Chris Cleve's Little Bee, in which Chris mm. Cleve, you know, enters the mind of a Nigerian girl. Um, oh. been, um, you know, you read them, Memoirs of a Geisha. Some of my friends told me, oh, they didn't realize that the author was not Asian, you know? Um, then there's Styron, William Styron's Confessions of Nat Turner, which is a book I talk a lot about. Um, and I've actually, there's an essay that will be coming out um, about my thoughts on what's happening with that book. But basically, I wanted to examine for myself this history. And so that's kind of what Harry is doing. But of course, I was even scared. So there's a part of me that wanted to see what the allure is. And like, why would you want to write about a different culture? And I'm not actually approaching it from a right or wrong angle. I'm approaching it from a from an angle of let's interrogate this and see sort of in a sense of a, a, a social experiment to see what the effect of my doing such a thing will be. Because historically, the people who have had the power to do such experimentation have been white, white men, white women. Now you can see that my doing it is, I don't have the same sort of societal backing as they have all had. Now Absolutely. I was careful, I was careful to do it as a satire as well, because I couldn't even, in all honesty, enter the mind of a white man. So I had to create a satirical white man for my conscience, for my conscience to be able to sit, like to be okay with it, right? So that's <laughs> partly the reason why Harry is a satirical character. Yes, it's possible for some people, depending on your reading, that it comes really, it hits close to home, right? It comes really close to realism, but he is fundamentally a satirical character. Nobody can deny that, you know? Um, he's just sort of like a babbling character. He, you know, carries out one blunder after another. Um, he is satirical, but I could not, in all honesty, write an actual white man um because <laughs> it would be you know it would be committing the same crimes i'm you know sort of like uncomfortable with others committing you know is way. it a crime of appropriation or is it a crime of doing it badly uh i use the word crime loosely so that is not actually the word i want to use because i right. don't actually believe it's a crime yeah so thank you for pointing that out thank you for pointing that out as i said earlier it is not, I'm not approaching it in a good or bad, um, from the lens of good or bad. I'm approaching it from, I wanna explore and I wanna examine how this would be different if I try to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not convinced that it's always bad. Yeah, I'm not convinced that it's always bad. I do think mm -hmm. that there are reasons why such, um, you know, an attempt might be productive. Now, I think those situations are probably rare, you know, and I am having a hard time coming up with an example right now, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not honestly convinced that um, they are, it's always a bad thing to enter a different culture, a different gender, a different anything, right? Like I don't mm -hmm. think necessarily, but in this, in this sense of race, I wanted to see it because there are many books that have gone on to achieve critical acclaim and, you know, win great prizes. And they have done what is essentially a caricature job of, 
you know, like African society, of even Mexican society, or whatever it is. I'm not actually calling out American dirt. I read the book and I think there are very many strengths to it, you mm -hmm. know, but I can see why it's problematic as well. So I'm not actually calling out, but I think in terms of the African society, which are the books I know the best, that they have done a very caricature job and still have been rewarded by the Western publishing world and the Western audience in general. And I wanted to see in a sense, like how it is that they can enjoy such power. And am I also allowed to enjoy that power? And I know my answer already. I am not, let's be honest. I will not be allowed to enjoy such power. I will not be backed up by society the way that these white men and women have been backed up. But I wanted to just see as an experiment to give the world, to give the American society a chance to prove me wrong, which so far they have not. And if they do prove <laughs> me wrong, I will be excited to see yeah. that I was wrong. Um, but it doesn't seem that we all share the same power, which is something that you and I probably already knew, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, it doesn't always, it's not a level playing field, right? And I think you're, uh, your response gets to the heart of uh, so many debates now, which are about a kind of, uh, we're in a very difficult place with the representation of diversity and the representation of uh, other cultures, you know, other sexualities, other this, other that. And, you know, all these debates now, and I'm, I'm thinking now, of course, of TV shows and uh, movies and so on, where you have these debates that erupt when uh, when you have like uh, a straight straight man play a trans woman or you have, uh, you know, um, I don't know, I think it was like Scarlett Johansson played like an Asian woman or something like that. So it's just, it's very, you know, it's very intense and we want to live in a world where everybody does get these opportunities and who, you know, where we can have this cross conversation, you know, uh, but it's it's become impossible. And um, I don't know where we're going to end up, but maybe your book is it's showing away or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I think about this really all the time. Like these societal questions really plague me. I will have to be honest, probably more <laughs> than I should. Because so uh, the other day I was telling my, I have all these stories, they relate to my mother. I guess I have a good relationship with my mom, but we bicker a lot too. But um, so the other day I was telling my mom, I told my mom a story and I don't remember the actual story. Then my sister comes, right? And my sister says, oh, what happened? What happened? And I'm too tired to repeat the story. So I say to my mom, no, you go ahead and tell her, just tell her. So my mom begins to tell the story to my sister, right? And as she's telling it, she's getting some things wrong. So there I go, find myself entering the conversation again to correct, like, oh, no, that's not exactly how it happened. This is what happened. So I'm entering the story and I'm correcting what my mother is telling my sister, right? So this is, in a, in a small way, it's the, story, it's the point of why people have issues with appropriation, right? Because... Mm -hmm. Even when you're theoretically, I'm okay with somebody else telling my story, but even as they're telling it, my own mother within the same family where I know she has my best interest at heart, she's getting it wrong, right? Yeah. She's not even telling it correctly. So imagine when you enter from a culture that is completely different, not even within the same family, and you're telling somebody else's story mm -hmm. for them, 
right? You're going to get a lot of it wrong. So basically, it seems to me that nobody likes to be appropriated. Now, are there ways to for somebody else to tell somebody else's story correctly? Definitely. But you've got to have that person right there sitting next to you telling you, no, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. There are probably ways to you know, address all of these issues if we humans can kind of sit around and talk about it some more. The other question is, again, it's the question of power, right? It always boils down to power. And power yeah. is not necessarily only race-related. It's class-related. It's gender-related, you know? But it is that question of power. If one demographic can do it so much, right? Why, why can't we all do it? Now, maybe if we all did it, then it would equalize everything and it would not be an issue anymore. So Absolutely. then I think to myself, is that the solution? Should we all just play around with this appropriation thing and know that it is just what it is? It's a playing around and trying to figure things out and mm -hmm. make you know, a sort of global agreement that we all share it and we will all be rewarded equally for doing it. Do you know? Absolutely. So there, there are different ways to approach it. And I, I say to myself, well, the issue right now is probably not just that we are appropriating, is that we are not appropriating equally. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's really the answer, but there are things that I think about. Um, yeah. I think about these things because these societal issues, I don't know what the solutions are, but I think that they are worth questioning and interrogating from a place that is more productive than condemning. We tend to leap toward that condemning. And yes, I'm not necessarily, you know, portraying it in positive light in my novel, but I am trying to get us to get to that moment of Mm -hmm. productive conversation that is yep. not just leaping to the condemning and I think that that might be part of the reason why people are confused about how to take my book because yep. it's not easy to just totally condemn it although some people might want to do that but it also <laughs> isn't easy to say okay it's everything is perfect in this book you know like it's questioning a lot of things that people are not comfortable with but that's because I'm also questioning you know <laughs> Right, right. No, absolutely. Uh, and you know, I'm currently in the in the in the UK, uh, where I walk by the millionth Shakespeare play poster, you know, so part of it is also like, let's have the new stories. Because again, and again, we're trying to implant diversity, sometimes within the same stories. You know, it's like, you have the black ballerina in the Tchaikovsky thing, you know, you're just constantly kind of adding color to things, but the stories themselves have to be something totally right. uh, new or from other cultures. You know, we have to stop not always talking about the same, uh, same, same plays, same novels, right. same things get adapted and readapted, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, one last question about Harry Sylvester Bird. I think one of the things my thing is I feel that reviewers have so far uh, not explored uh, the reviews that have come out is the the intensity and the granular kind of uh, detail with which you explore interracial relationships. Uh, I love the character of Mariam, who is the Nigerian student who comes uh, comes to New York to study. She's an undergrad. 
uh, and she gets into a relationship uh, with our Harry, who's a little creepy, a little weird, <laughs> but you know, uh, he's you know he's a satirical character. He's exaggerated, um, and then as their relationship plays out, so many instances uh, where which tests the racial dynamics between a couple. Um, why did you think interracial relationships were a, a place to explore these tensions? race tensions yeah simply because those tensions exist in interracial relationships right um so you know i think that interracial relationships are at once wonderful but also challenging right um so in from the from from the outside like we would like to say this is beautiful it's a union of diverse cultures who, that have come together and we would like to believe that there are no you know tensions related to like coming from different racial backgrounds but the reality is that if the relationship um and i speak from a personal angle and also not from a personal angle in any relationship if you come together with different backgrounds there are going to be things you're working through you know, you're going to be working through your own different histories. And then if you're from a different cultural context, you're going to be working through different cultures, right? And so it just made sense that um, they would be coming from, Harry and Miriam would be coming from their two different backgrounds, and they would have a lot to work through. In the novel, you get the sense that Miriam's background is also not happy, you know, that she yes. also has her own struggles that she's dealing with um and then harry also comes as we know from a background that is definitely abusive because if you grow up with racist parents it is abuse to you you know like you as the child the offspring of an abusive uh couple will also get some of that abuse so um he comes from a background that is not also happy and they're coming together trying to deal with their own individual traumas right and that's what the book is sort of dealing with uh, Miriam goes to him you know some people might say well why does she stay with him so long sometimes you go with the person who and you stay you try to make it work this is the reason why people in abusive relationships stay so long they don't leave it takes them such a long time to get out mm -hmm. you know statistically right. you can see this so it makes sense that she from her own um you know troubled background would also be a good I don't know I don't want to say yeah leaning on him you know exactly. not needing him more than he should more than she should work trying to make things work more than she should right mm -hmm. um and it was just a good not that I said oh Harry must have a girlfriend no actually like I said earlier I just created the character of Harry and followed his journey and if you you know follow the journey of any teenager till you know adulthood they will probably have a girlfriend, they will probably have a love interest, and they will probably date. And so Harry just, you know, um, it makes sense, given his background, that he would want to find an African woman to be with. Oh God, of course. You know? <laughs> and he does find her, that's who he finds attractive. And then he dates her, and it would make sense that, you know, they would then have to, you know, figure mm -hmm. out their issues um race related and non-race related you know yeah. some of these issues are not even race related some of the struggles they have are again this idea of 
ego, right? He's trying, it's masculinity sometimes, it's just like class sometimes. Um, it, it's not necessarily only race related, but they go through the motions of, um, you know, a, a, a couple that is having trouble. And <laughs> we, we observe, we are witnesses to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I just want to tell whoever's listening that, you know, they have to plow through the book, however much they find themselves on unfamiliar, uh, unfamiliar uh, territory, which, which it is. And, uh, you know, I have to applaud you for like, taking us through what we would call, like, cringeworthy things, you don't, you want to repress certain things <laughs> that happen. And you've maybe even been part of such uh, moments, events, but you're able to really tease it out and like, take us to the place or of analyzing uh, where American society and American race relations are today, you know? Uh, so I think yeah. that's, that's awesome, you know? Thank uh, you. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you one last question before, uh, before I let you go, uh, which is just a general curiosity of mine, which is about uh, MFA programs in uh, creative writings. I know you teach in an MFA programs or you have taught and you also went to uh, a wonderful MFA program and you know the scene from both sides. And I feel like uh, after these other programs now, at least in the US, very linear path, they're considered the linear path to finding success as a writer. Uh, but the last uh, like six, eight years, I feel there's been so much criticism leveled at uh, MFA programs, so many exposes and scandals. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, as someone who may identify as a writer of color who's interested in, uh, you know, other cultural writing, not just kind of like writing just about the U.S., um, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think about these programs, especially uh, what is it that they teach with regards to race, gender, class, you know, why are all these scandals coming up, you know? I don't know. I don't keep myself... You know, like I'm not up to date with the scandals. I'll mm -hmm. be honest with that, but I can speak for myself and my experience mm -hmm. in the program at Iowa. Um, for me, it was simply a dedicated period of time and a dedicated space during which I could wrestle with my thoughts and I could figure out what mattered to me and what I wanted to do with my writing. I'll say that when I was there, there was not really any substantial conversation um, related mm -hmm. to race and, you know, sexuality, uh, the professors really focused on the craft of writing. And yes, sometimes there were topics that, you know, related to race and gender and sexuality, but they came naturally out of the stories that the mm -hmm. students were writing. Um, so for me, it was just a good space to ask questions, to learn, to experiment, to fail, to succeed, you know, um, that's kind of related to the questions we were talking about, about who has the right to experiment, to play around, you know, um, not only to culturally appropriate, but even things like homages and things, who gets, you know, applauded for doing an homage and who doesn't. Um, there are just many things that in an MFA program, you have that space to experiment with, mm -hmm. to play around with, to, you know, to figure out the conversations right. around those things. Um, I think I think the critiques have been more that they flatten out innovative forms mm -hmm. that are often, 
people of uh, other races, sexualities, you know, whatever that want, might want to experiment with something else and that, that there may be a formula to a certain kind of writing that gets published. And I think people have been um, yeah. uh, also told to downplay the politics and things like that. And these were the kinds of like little articles and exposes that have been uh, going about. Yeah. In terms of that, I can see where that is coming from. I won't, you know, I don't want to misrepresent any MFA. No, of course. I will, be, I will be very honest and say that in my program, which again was a very valuable time and space for me, but I did often feel fundamentally alone because I was one of only a few minorities there. And actually, if I remember correctly, I was the only immigrant at the time, African immigrant, sorry, at the time. So, um, and, you know, if there were, if there were others, there might have been just one other, um, you know, but I know that since then things have changed substantially and it's a far more diverse program than ever. But that being said, you know, there were certain kinds of stories that were tooted as being the best kinds, like the, the example stories were usually, you know, white Western stories. Right. Um, and that doesn't leave much room for the kind of that it didn't leave much room for my kind of writing and also when we talk about uh when you mentioned the reviewers so i remember when i was you know writing stories like nigerian stories runs girl especially was a story that i workshopped when i was in the workshop and i remember that when it was getting workshop there were some comments surrounding how much a runs girl would be would be paid and um, right. the, 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 the workshoppers just couldn't understand why I chose the amount. And the, the Naira, you know, the Naira is the <laughs> yeah. to dollar transfer was a bit of a hiccup. And um, a lot of comments just centered around how unbelievable it was to that audience. Wow. And, but hi, as a Nigerian with very concrete knowledge on the subjects, you know, I knew better, but I, interestingly, I, I had that moment where I said to myself, maybe I should change it just to fit this audience since they're so adamant about what it should be and how they were essentially telling me in that workshop group that my real life knowledge was incorrect and that their perceived knowledge of what it should be was correct. And this is where you realize the importance of when people review your work, they should have the context. They should have the cultural context because if not, that review is null and void because you cannot change the reality of a culture simply because of a culture that doesn't understand it has the power and has the voice to tell you it's wrong when you know better your own culture. So in that sense, I will be honest and say that I understand some of the, you know, the reasons why people have felt that, you know, yeah. really culturally that um, an MFA program does, has done them some disservice. I, I get sure. it, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. not, that's just a very small example, you know, it's one small yeah. example, but if you, if you look at it, you can see how it could be actually really problematic on a larger scale right mm -hmm. because it does tie into what you were talking about again the reviews right these are the people who might then review your work but they are lacking fundamental knowledge that you yourself have but they have the power right they have you know the la review of book power backing they have the new york times backing and and that would seem that their perception of things is the correct one but you 
as the person from that culture, you know that like, yes, a runs girl would be paid this much. You yeah. know it from like firsthand knowledge, you know what I mean? And yeah. they make you almost question yourself. So yeah. you know, yeah. life is just interesting in that way. <laughs> Yeah. No, thank you for your honest answer. Not trying to cause a scandal here or expose your colleagues or your past at all. I just think it's it's a lot of conversations in the air, especially as teachers and especially, uh, you know, for someone like me who's who speaks to writers a lot and uh, writers who teach a lot and have students who will always um, you know, think about these things. Uh, but you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, good luck with the journey of Harry mm -hmm. Sylvester Bird. I think uh, we all give it, you know, many, many thumbs up. <laughs> so thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you so, so much for inviting me. Thank you for, for everything. <laughs>